Let's turn for our first scripture reading to 1 Peter 5. 1 Peter 5. The elders who are among you, I exhort, I who am a fellow elder and a witness to the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed, shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, not as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be, or, and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. But may the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, our faithful brother, as I consider him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God in which you stand. She who is in Babylon, elect together with you, greets you, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. And also we'll turn over to read from Ephesians chapter 6, and uh, we'll read verses 13 through 17. The previous verses uh, describe those spiritual enemies that we must face. And uh, verse 13 and following teach us how to do that in the power of uh, God's might, but also with the armor that he provides. In verse 13 we read, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand. Stand, therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, we again heard uh, this exhortation of this chapter to take up the whole armor of God. And this is a, a charge or a command that we are to obey. Uh, we are called to to fight against these spiritual uh, hosts of wickedness that we face, and we're called to do so in the power of the Lord. And uh, there are the only two options we might say are fight or or be defeated. There is no escaping this battle for Christians, and there is no safety in flight. There is no avoiding uh, the conflict that we are engaged in as Christians. Are there no foes for me to face? 
Uh, must I not stem the flood? Is this vile world a friend to grace to help us on to God? Uh, that's a stanza we'll sing later on after the service. And the, the answer to each of these questions is, well, yes, there are foes that we, we must face. We have to face this flood. We have to resist the allurements of this world. We read in, in 1 Peter 5 that our adversary uh, goes about like a roaring lion seeking whom he must, he would devour. And he must be resisted. When we bring our children for baptism, we pray that by God's grace they would manfully fight against sin and the devil and his whole dominion. That they would manfully fight and overcome them. That acknowledges from the very outset of the Christian life that we are in a spiritual battle. And yet we are also assured that the outcome of this battle is not doubtful. Uh, the result is not in question. The fight is not desperate in that sense. The battle must be fought, but the Lord gives us all that we need for victory. And we've been considering God's provisions, and this morning we're considering those uh, three remaining parts of the Christian's uh, panoply, his armor, with which he is equipped to to stand against the wiles of the devil, against these spiritual enemies that we face. Be strong in the Lord's invincible armor. And uh, we're considering now the, the fourth uh, implement with which we are equipped, and that is the shield of faith, your shield of faith. The Roman soldier was equipped with a variety of different kinds of shields, depending on the circumstances. But one of those shields that was commonly in use was a big shield, uh, two feet by four feet, and uh, it was covered with leather, and it served as a, a kind of impenetrable wall against arrows that might be uh, shot at uh, these soldiers. Those arrows might even have been dipped and pitched and set on fire, but they would be uh, extinguished or they would fall off these shields. And the shield served as like a door behind which the soldier would hunker down. And a number of these soldiers together would form like an impenetrable wall, a phalanx that would serve as a tremendous defense against enemies. And we are given a shield in which to withstand the fiery darts of the evil one. A shield. It's easy to see how important a shield is for our defense. And uh, in that connection, we notice that uh, uh, Peter, or Paul rather, says that we are to uh, take up the shield of faith above all. Above all, taking the shield of faith. This is of first importance. Your adversary, uh, the devil, goes about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him steadfast in the faith. It is by faith that we are to wage this warfare. It was through faith that the Old Testament saints uh, were valiant in conflict. Hebrews 11 describes that. It describes a number of uh, these Old Testament believers who through faith subdued kingdoms, 
worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. It's another way of saying they were strong in the Lord, in whom they believed, on whom they trusted. This is the victory that overcomes the world, John says in his first epistle. Even our faith. And we're told in our text that by faith we may quench the fiery darts of the wicked one. And that raises the question, the obvious question, well, what does that mean? What are those fiery darts? Now we have to be honest about the fact that uh, describing the way uh, Satan tempts Christians, it's not so easy to dispel that out in detail with very precise definitions. The difference between uh, temptations that, that come to us from without or temptations that arise from our own sinful inclinations, they're not so easy to distinguish, are they? Just exactly how Satan inv- is involved in inciting us to sin Well, it's not so easy to describe. It's important to pay attention to the imagery of our text in this connection because it seems to describe a particular mode of attack that Satan employs. Fiery darts. Sometimes you've probably heard the expression of a thought just darting into your mind, like uninvited, unintentional, but there it is. It may be a very troubling thought may be very disturbing, maybe a hateful thought. Well, sometimes Christians are assaulted by the devil in this way. You can read the biographies of Christians like, like uh, uh, John Bunyan and C.H. Uh, Spurgeon and how they passed through times of tremendous spiritual struggle. And part of that struggle was that they would be attacked with these blasphemous thoughts. It's as if Satan would whisper in their ear, There is no God. Curse God. Blaspheme his name. Now, those kinds of assaults are are properly understood to be the fiery darts of the wicked one. They come uninvited. They're hated. They're uh, They're not welcomed. They're not the result of an intentional focus upon evil things. But they seem to intrude into the mind of these Christians. Have you ever experienced that? It can take all different forms. Sometimes Christians can be tormented and troubled all of a sudden with their memory of the, their, their sins of their past life. And Satan says to them, oh, you can't be a Christian. No, it's these sins that really defines you. There's no escaping from who you really are. Just think of it. Christ was assaulted by the devil in this way. The Bible says that he suffered being tempted. Sometimes temptations to sin may come this way, even in horrible forms. Take away your own life. Just give yourself over to this this kind of immorality. And it's important to recognize these kinds of assaults as coming from the evil one in order to resist him, to resist him steadfast in the faith. Martin Lloyd-Jones gives some helpful advice when he says, "Don't, don't argue with the devil when he comes in this form. You just resist him. You refuse to give ear. And in that sense, you you hold up that shield of faith. You resist him by holding up your shield. 
if the, if the liar whispers in your ear, so to speak, there is no God. You say, God is. And he is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. If Satan would dare to suggest that, that God has forsaken you, you remember what God himself says. I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say the Lord is my helper. If the destroyer says you have fallen too far, there's no return for you. Just give up. Just join the world or take your own life. We could also use these wonderful words of scripture in Micah. Rejoice not against me, O my enemy. For when I fall, I shall rise again. When I sit in darkness, God will be a light to me. Oh, you're too great of a sinner to be saved. You've fallen too far. No hope for you. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Holding up the shield of faith is really another way of holding on to Christ. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Let Christ dwell in you richly. To go back to that passage in John. What is the victory that overcomes the world? Even our faith. And then it gets specific. Who is he who overcomes the world? He who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. He who clings to the reality of the revelation of the Savior Jesus Christ. He possesses that shield of faith to withstand these assaults of the evil one. Who is he who condemns? It's Christ who died. Who shall separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus? Famine, persecution, things present, things to come, death, on and on and on, the list goes. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. None of these things will separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. And believing that firmly in the face of these kinds of assaults is the way Satan is to be resisted. Through faith in Christ, we can withstand every kind of attack. These uh, darts of the devil are left smoldering and broken, so to speak, harmless under the feet of those who believe God no matter what. This is a great encouragement, isn't it, to know your Bible. Faith is not simply some optimistic outlook or wishful thinking. Faith is clinging to the truth of God's Word. And the more that Word dwells in us, and the more we're able to remember even the very words. Actually, uh, Paul uses uh, a word for word here that's, that refers to the spoken word. And to the extent that we know the very words of God, we'll be equipped to hold up this shield of faith. And let me say one more thing in this connection. I've emphasized before that uh, whatever our our stage in Christian the Christian life, a very common prayer that we ought to pray is for the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. We have special promises that God will give his Holy Spirit to those who ask him. And another very valuable prayer to repeat often is, Lord, increase my faith. Increase my faith. May things that are unseen and eternal, may they be real to me. May they exert such an influence over my mind and memory and my heart that they fortify me, that they strengthen me in this spiritual battle. That's the work of God, to increase our faith. When we come to the sacraments, 
We pray, Lord, increase our faith. Bless these means of grace that we might be confirmed and assured more and more of our salvation. In fact, in that connection, we look uh, secondly at your helmet of salvation. We read from Isaiah 59 last time where we, where we learned that this language of, of the helmet of salvation is language drawn from the Old Testament scriptures describing the Lord Jesus Christ who put on a helmet of salvation as he contended with the devil, as he carried out his task, and he actually accomplished salvation for us. But your helmet, then, is the assurance of salvation accomplished in Christ. We all know that a, that a blow to the head can knock us silly, lead to a, a concussion, rattle our brains, so to speak. And that's what Satan wants to do. He wants to rattle our brains with fear and with doubt and with confusion. He tries to batter us down to defeat and to hopelessness. If he can't get us to hang our heads, literally, he aims to get us to hang our heads in discouragement, in a sense of defeat and hopelessness. And if we judge things only by our feelings, we have reason enough for discouragement because often we feel defeated by our failures and our faith falters and we don't stand firm as we should. And we forget those lessons that we thought we had learned. And we commit those sins that we had, that we thought we had overcome. And we need this helmet of salvation. Here's an E. And she read Bible stories to you and taught you how to pray. And it may be that you can say that there was never a time when I didn't really trust in the Savior. Or it may be that there was a time, maybe when I was a teenager, Maybe it was through a book I read, a friend I had, a class I took. When the things that I believed, I truly believed them, but they became much more real to me. That the Savior in whom I trusted appeared far more precious and glorious than before. I don't even know if I was converted before that. Right? Sometimes that's part of their story. But it's a story of God's grace. And it's good to know your story. It's good to practice it. It's good to remember it. It's good to tell others about it. Maybe it's through some trial that God brought you through that made you realize on a deeper level that you hadn't had before just how much you depend upon God and His grace in the Lord Jesus Christ. There are details that are unique. There are common features that are shared to the Christian story. And it seems to me that there's a principle involved in this exhortation that extends beyond the situation of the Ephesians. And that is, grace is magnified by remembering. Reflect upon it. Should have many benefits. Should humble us. Make us realize indeed that it's God's grace that has come to us. Should comfort us. And it honors God. Grace is magnified by remembering. Secondly, we consider grace to those in the misery of being without. That at that time, remember that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. This verse describes a state of spiritual destitution. It's actually enclosed by some of the most dreadful words that could be spoken in the human language. Without Christ, 
without God that characterized the lives of these people for generations. Imagine yourself uh, strolling through a cemetery there in Ephesus and looking at the gravestones. And you know what you will not find on those gravestones? You will not find words like, I know that my Redeemer lives. You will not find words like, asleep in Jesus. You will not find words like, in my Father's house are many mansions. And we could go on and on and on and describe the kinds of testimonies that dying saints have left for their family and for generations to come to read. You could look at any gravestone there in the cemetery in Ephesus, and if truth be told, it could be written without Christ, without God. Headstone after headstone after headstone, dating back 20, 40, 100, 150, 200, 250, on and on for generations without Christ, without hope, without God in the world. That describes more and more many people in the world in which we live today. But you know what the sad thing is? The world doesn't see it. To be without a home, to be without a job, to be without health care, to be without savings, to be without someone to love, oh, these things are all bad. And yes, they can be very difficult. But to be without Christ... To be without God, they don't know what that means. And they see none of their problems in relation to the facts, the reality of their spiritual destitution. Without Christ, without God. But notice also that spiritual destitution is not only vertical. In other words, it it not only pertains to people's relationship to God. It's really to be without, without real community. It's to be without, uh, without shared love and without shared laws that give true order, that really promote human flourishing, that really serve a high purpose to life. You might say that our world suffers from homelessness, not just some inner city people, but our world suffers from being without a home, without uh, a place in that garden from which they were expelled so long ago without the security of the true and only Father that gives comfort and strength and hope beyond temporal concerns, without a fellowship of people that truly are like-minded in what is most deep and what matters the most and what is true and good. You see, all these things also depend upon God, God with us. That was God's gracious uh, design. That was his grace for Israel. And these Gentiles had been without that. They were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. They didn't belong to uh, a holy politic, if you will. They may have had citizenship in the greatest empire of the world. They may have been Roman citizens with all its privilege, but they weren't a part of a holy nation that God had set apart for his own treasure to be his people. They were strangers from the covenants of promise. 
They had no share in the covenant of grace, right? The covenants of promise, that really describes God's gracious dealings with his people for generation. With successive covenants, which all had common features of God's gracious promises to them. The covenant of grace to Abraham. The covenant of grace as it was revealed in the Mosaic Covenant with the whole sacrificial system pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ and the promise of forgiveness of sins through the shedding of blood. The promise to David that of his seed a king would reign upon his throne forever bringing peace. All issuing in the fullness of God's covenant grace revealed in the new covenant in Christ. Covenants marked by promise. They were strangers to that. They had no share in it. And we might add as well that no one cared for their souls. That's part of the picture. In verse 11, uh, these Gentiles, who were Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, called the uncircumcision. And in this context, this is like a term of, of judgment and reproach. You could hear it on the lips of a proud Israelite, the uncircumcision. They were without Israel's privileged, but they were judged by Israelite pride. And that's, that's how we are to understand this language of the circumcision made in the flesh by hands. It's talking about those that, yeah, they had the badge of God's covenant promise. But in their pride and unbelief, they were just judgmental towards others. That's about as far as it goes. The sign of God's covenant faithfulness had become a badge of imagined superiority. These Gentiles were outside and with no way in to what treated them as outsiders with no access. A closed and sadly often a graceless community. No one cared for their souls. Having no hope without God in the world. That's probably, again, in combination with these other descriptions. What a, what a dreadful description. Could have been written on the arch of the great temple of Artemis where thousands would go. No hope. Can be written on the doors of our hospital rooms where people are dying and suffering today without God and without Christ. Could be written on the doormats of homes throughout this city where there is no Bible reading, where there is no knowledge of God. No hope. To be without Christ, to be without God, is to have no hope in the world. That was their misery. They didn't know it. They didn't feel it. But they came to see it. And it changed. They're called to remember it. And see the marvelous grace that God showed. The grace of being brought near. Right? That's what's described. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Here's another great transition verse, right? It's like verse 4. We zeroed in on those first words. But God, those who are dead in trespasses and sins, in this horrible condition of, of servitude to sin and Satan, slaves to their own desires, unresponsive to the truth, but God. And here there are those who were far off. 
without hope, without God in the world. But now, great transition, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near. Here is the language that proclaims sovereign grace. Even the language brought near. It doesn't say you came near. It doesn't say you overcame every obstacle. You somehow crashed through every difficulty and made your way to God. It doesn't say that. These things were bulldozed aside, if you will. They were swept aside by divine grace and power. In fact, there's not even a mention here of some loving missionary Jews who opened the door to them. There were loving missionary Jews who proclaimed the gospel to them. But even in this passage, Christ came and preached to them. They were instruments of God's work. There's even no mention of their faith. The text zeroes in on what God did. They were brought near. And the only agent of change that is mentioned here, that is, there is one cause affecting the difference from far off to near. And what is that? It's in that verse. The blood of Christ. By the blood of Christ. You know, the high priest in the Old Covenant brought the blood of sacrifice into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement. By the blood of Christ, who entered heaven, who entered the real Holy of Holies after having offered himself as the once-for-all sacrifice for sins by the blood of Christ. Sinners who were far off are brought near, near to God, into his very presence, into his favor, where there is no condemnation, because Christ, through his ultimate sacrifice, indeed broke down the barriers and brought these sinners near. And you notice also that this nearness makes up the whole distance of separation. Not only the vertical distance, but also the horizontal distance. You see, the picture of this text, and it continues throughout this passage, is God gathering a people together as one. It's not of God starting something brand new. God starting a new dispensation. The church age. As if Israel was abandoned and that covenant just really didn't work very well and so I'm starting an entirely different plan. No, no, no. That's not the picture at all. The picture is that of gathering Gentiles to Israel, really, to make them one people by grace. Those who were strangers to the covenants of promise are now included in the covenant of promise. I already quoted uh, Acts chapter 2. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call unto him. The idea is being called into fellowship with the people whom God had brought unto himself, the people to whom God had given the word of salvation, the people to whom God has revealed and now fulfilled his promises of redemption in Christ. You also have a share in that. The hopeless are gathered home. They're brought to the Father's house. They're given a place in the family. That's the beauty 
of the marvelous grace of God in bringing us to himself as a people who together are brought near to him and to one another. You share in that grace. Praise and magnify the God of grace. Receive and believe firmly for yourself this marvelous story of deliverance and redemption. And if it's not your story, at least in terms of the central details of being restored to God in peace, in which there is no condemnation in Christ, in which there is the forgiveness of sins, in which there is the assurance that He who can keep you from stumbling will present you faultless before the presence of His glory with exceeding joy. If you don't know that for yourself, the door is open. The way is made clear. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. But whoever comes to Christ as the way, the truth, and the life for salvation from life without Christ, without God, will never be turned aside. He who comes unto me, I will by no means cast aside. So the wonder of the gospel proclamation is that open door to sinners who turn to God in their need, in their homelessness, in their hopelessness, in their alienation from God, in their lack of true community and fellowship. Do you know, brothers and sisters, that most people in your life in the workplace who are not Christians have a relatively small circle of friends and acquaintances? That's their world. You know more people. You have relationships with more people than most people because you're a member of the body of Christ. And you share in a fellowship, in a belonging with a people that this poor lost world just does not know. And coming to God is coming home to the Father and to the family. Praise Him for the grace that brings us near. Amen.